Chapter 4 of The Conquest of Bread by Peter Kropotkin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4 Expropriation Part 1 It is told of Rothschild that, seeing his fortune threatened by the Revolution of 1848, he hit upon the following stratagem. I am quite willing to admit, said he, that my fortune has been accumulated at the expense of others, but if it were divided tomorrow among the millions of Europe, the share of each would only amount to five shillings. Very well, then. I undertake to render to each his five shillings if he asked me for it. Having given due publicity to his promise, our millionaire proceeded as usual to stroll quietly through the streets of Frankfurt. Three or four passerbys asked for their five shillings, which he dispersed with a sardonic smile. His stratagem succeeded, and the family of the millionaire is still in possession of its wealth. It is in much the same fashion that the shrewd heads among the middle classes reason when they say, Ah, expropriation! I know what that means. You take all the overcoats and lay them in a heap, and everyone is free to help himself and fight for the best. But such jests are irrelevant as well as flippant. What we want is not a redistribution of overcoats, although it must be said that even in such a case the shivering folk would see advantage in it. Nor do we want to divide up the wealth of the Rothschilds. What we do want is so to arrange things that every human being born into the world shall be ensured the opportunity in the first instance of learning some useful occupation, and of becoming skilled in it. Next, that he shall be free to work at his trade without asking leave of master or owner, and without handing over to landlord or capitalist the lion's share of what he produces. As to the wealth held by the Rothschilds or the Vanderbilts, it will serve us to organize our system of communal production. The day when the laborer may till the ground without paying away half of what he produces, the day when the machines necessary to prepare the soil for rich harvests are at the free disposal of the cultivators, the day when the workers in the factories produces for the community and not the monopolist, that day will see the workers clothed and fed, and there will be no more Rothschilds or other exploiters. No one will then have to sell his working power for a wage that only represents a fraction of what he produces. So far so good, say our critics. But you will have Rothschilds coming in from outside. How are you to prevent a person from amassing millions in China and then settling amongst you? How are you going to prevent such a one from surrounding himself with lackeys and wage slaves, from exploiting them and enriching himself at their expense? You cannot bring about a revolution all over the world at the same time. Well then, are you going to establish custom houses on your frontiers to search all who enter your country and confiscate the money they bring with them? Anarchist policemen firing on travelers would be a fine spectacle. But at the root of this argument there is a great error. Those who propound it have never paused to inquire whence comes the fortune of the rich. A little thought would, however, suffice to show them that these fortunes have their beginning in the poverty of the poor. When there are no longer any destitute, there will no longer be any rich to exploit them. Let us glance for a moment at the Middle Ages, 
when great fortunes began to spring up. A feudal baron seizes on a fertile valley, but as long as the fertile valley is empty of folk, our baron is not rich. His land brings him in nothing. He might as well possess a property on the moon. What does our baron do to enrich himself? He looks out for peasants. For poor peasants! If every peasant farmer had a piece of land, free from rent and taxes, if he had in addition the tools and the stock necessary for farm labor, who would plough the land of the baron? Everyone would look after his own, but there are thousands of destitute persons ruined by wars, or drought, or pestilence. They have neither horse nor plough. Iron was costly in the Middle Ages, and a drought horse still more so. All these destitute creatures are trying to better their conditions. One day they see on the road, at the confines of our baron's estate, a notice-board, indicating by certain signs adapted to their comprehension that the laborer who is willing to settle on this estate will receive the tools and materials to build his cottage and sow his fields, and a portion of the land rent-free for a certain number of years. The number of years is represented by so many crosses on the signboard, and the peasant understands the meaning of these crosses. So the poor wretches swarm over the baron's lands, making roads, draining marshes, building villages. In nine years he begins to tax them. Five years later he increases the rent. Then he doubles it. The peasant accepts these new conditions because he cannot find better ones elsewhere. And little by little, the aid of laws made by the barons, the poverty of the peasant becomes the source of the landlord's wealth. And it is not only the lord of the manor who preys upon him. A whole host of usurers swoop down upon the villages, multiplying as the wretchedness of the peasants increases. That is how things went in the Middle Ages. And today is it not still the same thing? If there were free lands which the peasant could cultivate if he pleased, would he pay fifty pounds to some shabble of a duke for condescending to sell him a scrap? Would he burden himself with a lease which absorbed a third of the produce? Would he, on the Mataye system, consent to give half of his harvest to the landowner? But he has nothing. So he will accept any conditions, if only he can keep body and soul together, while he tills the soil and enriches the landlord. So, in the nineteenth century, just as the Middle Ages, the poverty of the peasant is a source of wealth, to the landed proprietor. Part 2 The landlord owes his riches to the poverty of the peasant, and the wealth of the capitalist comes from the same source. Take the case of a citizen of the middle class, who somehow or other finds himself in possession of twenty thousand pounds. He could, of course, spend his money at the rate of two thousand pounds a year, a mere bagatelle in these days of fantastic, senseless luxury. But then he would have nothing left at the end of ten years. So, being a practical person, he prefers to keep his fortune intact, and win for himself a snug little annual income as well. This is very easy in our society, for the good reason that the towns and villages swarm with workers who have not the wherewithal to live for a month, or even a fortnight, so our worthy citizen starts a factory, 
the banks hasten to lend him another twenty thousand pounds, especially if he has a reputation for business ability. And with this round sum, he can command the labor of five hundred hands. If all the men and women in the countryside had their daily bread sure and their daily needs already satisfied, who would work for our capitalist at a wage of half a crown a day, while the commodities one produces in a day sell in the market for a crown or more? Unhappily, we know it all too well. The poor quarters of our towns and the neighboring villages are full of needy wretches, whose children clamor for bread. So, before the factory is well finished, the workers hasten to offer themselves. Where a hundred are required, three hundred besiege the doors. And from the time his mill is started, the owner, if he only has average business capacity, will clear forty pounds a year out of each mill hand he employs. He is thus able to lay by a snug little fortune, and if he chooses a lucrative trade and has business talents, he will soon increase his income by doubling the number of men he exploits. And so he becomes a personage of importance. He can afford to give dinners to other personages, to the local magnates, the civic, legal, political dignitaries. With his money he can marry money. By and by he may pick and choose places for his children, and later on perhaps get something good from the government, a contract for the army or for the police. His gold breeds gold till at last a war, or even a rumor of a war, or a speculation on the stock exchange, gives him great opportunity. Nine-tenths of the great fortunes in the United States are, as Henry George has shown in the social problems, the result of knavery on a large scale, assisted by the state. In Europe, nine-tenths of the fortunes made in our monarchies and republics have the same origin, there are not two ways of becoming a millionaire. This is the secret of wealth. Find the starving and destitute, pay them half a crown, and make them produce five shillings worth in a day. Amass a fortune by these means, and then increase it by some lucky hit, made with the help of the state. Need we go on to speak of small fortunes attributed by economists to forethought and frugality, when we know that mere saving in itself brings in nothing, so long as the pence saved are not used to exploit the fabishing. Take a shoemaker, for instance. Grant that his work is well paid, that he has plenty of custom, and that by dint of strict frugality he contrives to lay by from eighteen pence to two shillings a day, perhaps two pounds a month. Grant that our shoemaker is never ill, that he does not half-starve himself, in spite of his passion for economy, that he does not marry, or that he has no children, that he does not die of consumption. Suppose anything and everything you please. Well, at the age of fifty he will not have scraped together eight hundred pounds, and he will not have enough to live on during his old age, when he is past work. Assuredly this is not how great fortunes are made, but suppose our shoemaker, as soon as he is laid by a few pence, thriftily conveys them to the savings bank, and that the savings bank lends them to the capitalist who is just about to employ labor, i.e. to exploit the poor. Then our shoemaker takes an apprentice, the child of some poor wretch, who will think himself lucky in five years' time his son had learned the trade and is able to earn his living. 
Meanwhile, our shoemaker does not lose by him. and his trade is brisk, he soon takes a second, and then a third apprentice. By and by, he will take two or three working men. Poor wretches, thankful to receive half a crown a day for work that is worth five shillings. And if our shoemaker is in luck, that is to say, if he is keen enough and mean enough, his working men and apprentices will bring him in nearly one pound a day, over and above the product of his own toil. He can then enlarge his business. He will gradually become rich, and no longer have any need to stint himself in the necessities of life. He will leave a snug little fortune to his son. That is what people call being economical and having frugal, temperate habits. At bottom it is nothing more nor less than grinding the face of the poor. Commerce seems an exception to this rule. Such a man, we are told, buys tea in China, brings it to France, and realizes a profit of thirty percent on his original outlay. He has exploited nobody. Nevertheless, the case is analogous. If our merchant has carried his bales on his back, well and good. In early medieval times this was exactly how foreign trade was conducted, and so no one reached such giddy heights of fortune as in our days. Very few and very hardly earned were the gold coins which the medieval merchant gained from a long and dangerous voyage. It was less the love of money than the thirst of travel and adventure that inspired his undertakings. Nowadays the method is simpler. A merchant who has some capital need not stir from his desk to become wealthy. He telegraphs to an agent telling him to buy a hundred tons of tea. He freights a ship, and in a few weeks, in three months, if it is a sailing ship, the vessel brings him his cargo. He does not even take the risks of the voyage, for his tea and his vessel are insured, and if he has expended four thousand pounds, he will receive more than five thousand. That is to say, if he has not attempted to speculate in some novel commodities, in which case he runs a chance of either doubling his fortune or losing it altogether. Now how could he find men willing to cross the sea, to travel to China and back, to endure hardship and slavish toil, and to risk their lives for a miserable pittance? How could he find dock laborers willing to load and unload his ships for starvation wages? How? Because they are needy and starving. Go to the seaports, visit the cook shops and taverns on the quays. Look at these men who have come to hire themselves, crowding round the dock gates, which they besiege from early dawn, hoping to be allowed to work on the vessels. Look at these sailors, happy to be hired for a long voyage, after weeks and months of waiting. All their lives long they have gone to the sea in ships, and they will sail another still until they have perished in the waves. Enter their homes, look at their wives and children in rags, living one knows not how till the father returns, and you will have the answer to the question. Multiply examples, choose them where you will. Consider the origin of all fortunes, large or small, whether arising out of commerce, finance, manufactures, or the land. Everywhere you will find that the wealth of the wealthy springs from the poverty of the poor. This is why an anarchist society need not fear the advent of a Rothschild who would settle in a smith. If every member of the community knows that after a few hours of productive toil he will have a right to all the pleasures that civilization procures, and to those deeper sources of enjoyment which art and science offer to all who seek them, 
He will not sell his strength for a starvation wage. Not one will volunteer to work for the enrichment of your Rothschild. His guineas will be only so many pieces of metal, useful for various purposes, but incapable of breeding more. In answering the above objection, we have at the same time indicated the scope of our expropriation. It must apply to everything that enables any man, be he financier, mill owner, or landlord, to appropriate the product of others' toil. Our formula is simple and comprehensive. We do not want to rob any one of his coat, but we wish to give to the workers all those things the lack of which make them fall as easy prey to the exploiter, and we will do our utmost that none shall lack aught, and that not a single man shall be forced to sell the strength of his right arm to obtain a bare subsistence for himself and his babes. This is what we mean when we talk of expropriation. This will be our duty during the revolution, for whose coming we look, not two hundred years hence, but soon, very soon. Part 3. The ideas of anarchism in general and of expropriation in particular find much more sympathy than we are apt to imagine among men of intelligent character, and those for whom idleness is not the supreme ideal. Still, our friends often warn us, take care you do not go too far. Humanity cannot be changed in a day, so do not be in too great a hurry with your schemes of expropriation and anarchy or you will be in danger of achieving no permanent results. Now, what we fear with regard to expropriation is exactly the contrary. We are afraid of not going far enough, of carrying out expropriation on too small a scale to be lasting. We would not have the revolutionary impulse arrested in big career, to exhaust itself in half-measures, which would content no one, and while producing a tremendous confusion in society, and stopping its customary activities, would have no vital power, would merely spread general discontent, and inevitably prepare the way for the triumph of reaction. There are, in fact, in a modern state established relations, which it is practically impossible to modify if one attacks them only in detail. There are wheels within wheels in our economic organization. The machinery is so complex and interdependent that no one part can be modified without disturbing the whole. This becomes clear as soon as an attempt is made to expropriate anything. Let us suppose that in a certain country a limited form of expropriation is effected. For example, that, as it has been suggested more than once, only the property of the great landlords is socialized, whilst the factories are left untouched or that, in a certain city, house property is taken over by the commune, but everything else is left in private ownership, or that, in some manufacturing center, the factories are communalized, but the land is not interfered with. The same result would follow in each case. A terrible shattering of the industrial system, without the means of reorganizing it on new lines. Industry and finance would be at a deadlock, Yet a return to the first principles of justice would not have been achieved, and society would find itself powerless to construct a harmonious whole. If agriculture could free itself from great landowners, while industry still remained the bond-slave of the capitalist, the merchant, and the banker, nothing would be accomplished. The peasant suffers today 
not only in having to pay rent to the landlord, he is oppressed on all hands by existing conditions. He is exploited by the tradesman, who makes him pay half a crown for a spade, which, measured by the labor spent on it, is not worth more than a sixpence. He is taxed by the state, who cannot do without its formidable hierarchy of officials, and finds it necessary to maintain an expensive army, because the traders of all nations are perpetually fighting for the markets. And any day a little quarrel arising from the exploitation of some part of Asia or Africa may result in war. Then again, the peasants suffer from the dispopulation of country places. The young people are attracted to the large manufacturing towns by the bait of high wages paid temporarily by the producers of articles of luxury, or by the attractions of more stirring life. The artificial protection of industry, the industrial exploitation of foreign countries, the prevalence of stock jobbing, the difficulty of improving the soil and the machinery of production. All these agencies combine nowadays to work against agriculture, which is burdened not only by rent, but by the whole complex of conditions in a society based on exploitation. Thus, even if the expropriation of land were accomplished, and everyone were free to till the soil and cultivate it to the best advantage, without paying rent, agriculture, even though it should enjoy, which can by no means be taken for granted, a momentary prosperity, would soon fall back into the sloughs in which it would find itself to-day. The whole thing would have to be begun over again, with increased difficulties. The same holds true of industry. Take the converse case. Instead of turning the agricultural laborers into peasant proprietors, make over the factories to those who work in them. Abolish the master manufacturers, but leave the landlord his land, the banker his money, the merchant his exchange. Maintain the swarm of idlers who live on the toil of the workmen, the thousand and one middlemen, the state with its numberless officials, and industry would come to a standstill. Finding no purchaser in the mass of peasants who would remain poor, not possessing the raw material, and unable to export their produce, partly on account of the stoppage of trade, but still more so because industry spread all over the world, the manufacturers would feel unable to struggle, and thousands of workers would be thrown upon the street. These starving crowds would be ready and willing to submit to the first schemer who came to exploit them. They would even consent to return to the old slavery, if only under promise of work. Or, finally, suppose you oust the landlords and hand over the mills and factories to the workers, without interfering with the swarms of middlemen who drain the product of our manufacturers, and speculate in corn and flour, meat and groceries, in our great centers of commerce. Then... As soon as exchange is arrested, the great cities are left without bread, and others find no buyers for their articles of luxury. A terrible counter-revolution will take place, a counter-revolution treading upon the slain, sweeping the town and villages with shot and shell. There would be prescription, panic, flight, tend all the terrors of the guillotine, as it was in France in 1815, 1848, and 1871. All is interdependent in a civilized society. It is impossible to reform any one thing without altering the whole. Therefore, on the day we strike at private property, under any one of its forms, territorial or industrial, we shall be obligated to attack them all. The very success of the revolution will demand it. Besides, 
we could not, if we would, confine ourselves to a partial expropriation. Once the principle of the divine right of property is shaken, no amount of theorizing will prevent its overthrow, here by the slaves of the toil, there by the slaves of the machine. If a great town, Paris, for example, were to confine itself to taking possession of the dwelling houses of the factories, it would be forced also to deny the right of the bankers to levy upon the commune a tax amounting to two million pounds in the form of interest for former loans. The great city would be obliged to put itself in touch with the rural districts, and its influence would inevitably urge the peasants to free themselves from the landowner. It would be necessary to communalize the railways, that the citizens might get food and work, and lastly, to prevent the waste of supplies, and to guard against the trust of corn speculators, like those to whom the commune of 1793 fell a prey. It would have to place in the hands of the city the works of stocking its warehouse with commodities, and apportioning the produce. Nevertheless, some socialists still seek to establish a distinction. Of course, they say, the soil, the mines, the mills, and manufactures must be expropriated. These are the instruments of production, and it is right we should consider them public property. But articles of consumption, food, clothes, and dwellings, should remain private property. Popular common sense has got the better of this subtle distinction. We are not savages who can live in the woods, without other shelter than the branches. The civilized man needs a roof, a room, a hearth, and a bed. It is true that the bed, the room, and the house is a home of idleness for the non-producer, but for the worker, a room, properly heated and lighted, is as much an instrument of production as the tool of the machine. It is the place where the nerves and sinews gather strength for the work of the morrow. The rest of the workman is the daily repairing of the machine. The same argument applies even more obviously to food. The so-called economists of whom we speak would hardly deny that the coal burnt in a machine is as necessary to produce as the raw material itself. How then can food, without which the human machine could do no work, be excluded from the list of things indispensable to the producer? Can this be a relic of religious metaphysics? The rich man's feast is indeed a matter of luxury, but the food of the worker is just as much a part of production as the fuel burnt by the steam engine. The same with clothing. If the economists who draw this distinction between articles of production and of consumption dress themselves in the fashion of New Guinea, we could understand their objection. But men who could not write a word without a shirt on their back are not in a position to draw such a hard and fast line between their shirt and their pen. And though the dainty gowns of their dames must certainly rank as objects of luxury, there is nevertheless a certain quantity of linen, cotton, and woolen stuff which is a necessity of life to the producer. The shirt and shoes in which he goes to his work, his cap and the jacket he slips on after the day's toil is over, these are as necessary to him as a hammer to the anvil. Whether we like it or not, this is what the people mean by a revolution. As soon as they have made a clean sweep of the government, they will seek first of all to ensure to themselves decent dwellings and sufficient food and clothes, free of capitalist rent. And the people will be right. The method of the people will be much more in accordance with science than those of the economists who draw so many distinctions between instruments of production and articles of consumption. The people who understand that this is just the point where the revolution ought to begin, and they will lay the foundations of the only economic science worthy the name, a science which might be called the study of the need of humanity 
and of the economic means to satisfy them. End of chapter 4 The Conquest of Bread by Peter Kropotkin Read by members of Audible Anarchist